Hey friends, this is Shadima, also known as the Type A Hippie, and this is the Type A Hippie Podcast, Cheatcast, episode 64. So I am on, and this is, again, the Survivor Series arc, um, because I love stories and I love hearing what other people have experienced. It gets me out of my own head and out of my own way, and it inspires me. And so I'm on with a friend, Michael Smith Jr. We met... I don't even know. We met, I think, when I moved to Ann Arbor a year ago, and I started doing some work with Team RWB, which is an organization that's amazing and all about, you can look it up at teamrwb.org, about integrating military personnel and various stages of their career into the community through fitness and health, um, healthy activities. And so Michael and I kind of connected, right? That's how we connected, I think, like online through correct. Facebook, right? It was, it was online through Facebook, yes. And uh, I think I responded to a couple of your posts and uh, then we decided it was going to probably be time to meet. Yeah, absolutely. And we met over essential oil. So Michael is really amazing. He's a wealth of knowledge about so many things and it's refreshing to speak with him. And so I'll probably have you come back on um, at a later time outside of this art just to kind of talk um, because I know that listeners will get a lot of good information from you. But I wanted to have you be a part of this particular series because you are a survivor and you are so amazing. And so welcome, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. And I appreciate the opportunity to share. Definitely. So why don't you, before we get into everything, uh, introduce yourself or share about who you are in your own words. Okay. Um, I'm Michael Gene Smith, Jr. I was born and raised in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And uh, my dad and my dad's family are descendants of the original black settlers to the central Michigan counties of Isabella, Montcalm, and Macosta. There were probably about, oh, about 100 original black families that settled in that area prior to the Civil War and then directly after the Civil War. And there was a long, long uh, tradition uh, within those families to get together on the third Saturday of August every year for what was called the Old Settlers Reunion. So, and we re affectionately referred to it as picnic. And uh, I grew up in Grand Rapids and literally around the corner and on every street in my neighborhood were my cousins from all these other uh, families, uh, like the Letts and the Normans and the Sleets, Johnsons, Burns, Smiths, Greens, Crosses, Waves. And uh, it was an amazing experience growing up to have that kind of a family uh, tie. And, and we even have a book uh, that uh, has the recorded histories of all those families, which really provided a, a rootedness and groundedness for me uh, coming up in terms of identifying who I was. And uh, But I'm also of mixed parentage. My, my mother is a uh, for all intents and purposes, I'll use the, the terms that society uses. She's white, <laughs> um, and my dad is black. And so I, I had that uh, cultural experience uh, growing up, and uh, Grand Rapids was a good place to grow up. It's the second biggest city in Michigan. I think uh, my family and that city and my, my folks uh, kind of defined who I was as a person. I entered the military at the age of 17, 
And I spent eight years on active duty in the U.S. Army. And then after getting out of the military, I stayed in both the Army National Guard and, and uh, then switched over to the Army Reserves and retired after 21 years of service uh, with my um, active duty time and my um, Guard and Reserve time. Um, I took advantage of a lot of my veterans' benefits. Uh, I'm a proud veteran of my military service. And one of the things that I get to do, and I think uh, you already know that about me, is, is uh, uh, in my civilian job, I am the director of the Washtenaw County Department of Veterans Affairs, where every day I get the privilege of working with veterans, male and female, of all eras, World War II, peacetime, Korea, Vietnam, Persian Gulf, Operation Iraqi Freedom, Operation Enduring Freedom, all branches of service, and I help them obtain their benefits from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, the state of Michigan, and then we have local benefits for veterans as well. And that, I think those were the things that defined me the most, and that was uh, my uh, growing up in Grand Rapids, uh, my folks, my, my dad's family history, and that strong connection and rootedness and groundedness that I had from them. I had nobody on my mom's side of the family that, believe it or not, um, so really, my dad's family uh, was my family. Uh, I had no cousins or aunts or uncles on my mom's side of uh, uh, growing up. So um, again, there was that real strong identification with my dad's family. And then I, I know that the, the uh, U.S. Army was the other defining experience in my life. Uh, then with those uh, opportunities uh, afforded me, from the military, I, I was able to go to school at Washtenaw Community College and then obtain my undergraduate at uh, Eastern Michigan University, which is an amazing college and university. It doesn't get the credit it really should since we're always in the shadow of our the other institution <laughs> down the road, the University of Michigan. Mm -hmm. um, but then I went back and did my graduate work there and obtained a degree in um, uh, public administration and my undergraduate, and then I did the master's in public administration because I really found with military service that I liked helping people. I liked serving sure. people. And I liked uh, actually beating bureaucracies. Although, yes, I am a government employee. One of my pet peeves is bad government and bad bureaucracy. And that's why I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to serve as an advocate for my customers in uh, basically beating the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs when they get things wrong. And trust me, they get things wrong a lot. Um, so, um, I have one daughter, um, I'm a single parent actually, and I have a granddaughter who's two and a half years old. And those two ladies right there are my worlds. They are my entire life. I love them. And I, I make sure that they have everything that they need. And if you want to say they're spoiled, they, yes, they are. Absolutely. <laughs> There's probably the, the, the biggest joy I get other than doing my work and uh, hanging out with my family is spoiling my daughter and my granddaughter. I love that. Yeah, your granddaughter is super cute. I've, I've had the pleasure of meeting her and spending time with the two of you. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a beautiful thing. So Michael, I have, you know, in our conversations, I realized that some of your experience in the military, you know, while you appreciate it and we definitely appreciate your service to our country and um, that needs to be said. Um, it wasn't always smooth sailing um, for you and life hasn't always been smooth sailing. So can you tell us a little bit about how you identify um, 
as a survivor, what, what did you experience um, that you've now come out the other side? And we'll, we'll go backwards to, you know, how you were able to do that. But if you could share with us what happened to you that led you to have a, you know, you were at a crossroads and led you down a different path than you may have gone. Well, I met my ex-wife um, in North Carolina while I was stationed at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And I was very young. I was not a very experienced person in terms of um, relationships. Um, and I met my wife and my ex-wife, excuse me, and got married uh, very quickly, probably within six months of meeting her, not knowing this person and, and not knowing uh, enough about her. And uh, the first two years of our relationship was, was pretty tumultuous. Um, there was a lot of arguing um, and, and, and mostly coming from her uh, with um, accusing me of doing things that I was not guilty of doing. And yet I just kind of accepted this as being the typical guy-gal stuff, you know, uh, gals accuse guys of, um, of doing things. And, um, you know, there was always the typical arguments over money and sex and, you know, communication and things like that. And about two years into our relationship, um, something happened where my wife was uh, suspecting that I had done something. Uh, she had no confirmation. She had no real knowledge that uh, something actually happened. This was just a suspicion. And she was so angry about it that uh, one day uh, while I was sitting on the couch in our apartment in Southern Pines, North Carolina, the front door of our apartment swung open, hit the wall. So it, she, she threw open the door so hard that it hit the wall and made a big loud noise. And she just screamed at me. She said, so you tell me about this person and, and, and gave a name and she started shooting at me. She had a 22 wow. uh, revolver and uh, I jumped up off of the couch after the first shot because it, it, it scared me. And I started going towards um, the hallway of our apartment and she closed the distance between us very quickly. And she literally shot me at point blank range. Uh, the bullet entered the, my left chest just underneath my my pectoral muscle. And um, when I looked down and saw that I was shot, uh, I saw the powder burn and the blood started coming. Uh, it was that, believe it or not, that good army training. Uh, I put my hand on the wound. Uh, the smoke from the gun, believe it or not, provided enough cover at the time and surprise that uh, I moved down the hallway of our, of our apartment, entered the master bedroom closed and locked the door this is just all automatic pilot believe it or not sure closed and locked the door ran across the bedroom opened up the window kicked out the screen climbed through the window and i started running i, I had no shoes on um and i was running around the uh, apartment driveway uh, apartment complex driveway and uh, i all of a sudden I, because my lung had collapsed i, I couldn't breathe so as I was uh, going through that, I started going into shock. I mean, this is all in retrospect, knowing what was going on with my body. And I felt this icy cold feeling going up my spine and kind of wrapping around my head. And then I thought to myself, man, I've always been scared of dying. And now I'm going to die. And this is how I'm going to die. My, my wife shot me. Mm. And um, I did. I, I know this, this part of the story may sound strange to some people. 
I heard a voice. It was not audible outside of me. I didn't hear it with my ears, but I heard it. And the voice was very loud and it said, my son, you are not going to die. Wow. Just then, just at that moment, a car pulled in in front of me into a parking spot. It actually happened to be the resident manager of our apartment complex. I, I literally walked over to the car and said, please take me to the hospital. I've been shot. She uh, emptied her car of the occupants who were all, all screaming and hollering like, oh, my God, what's going on? And she put me in the backseat of the car and she drove me to Moore Memorial Hospital. Uh, when I got there, uh, they put me under and they did a laparotomy. They cut me open because they wanted to see if there was any internal damage. And what they found was that the bullet actually hit my ninth rib, deflected away from my heart and fractured my ninth rib. And then it lodged just underneath the skin in my back. They didn't want to take the bullet out because they didn't want to create a through and through wound. They felt that that was leading me open to potential uh, infection. So. Um, uh, when I came out of surgery, I had enough wherewithal, I guess, to call my, my folks. And the next time I woke up, my mom and her husband and my dad and his wife had driven all the way from Michigan. Now, this is a 12, 14-hour drive, so I, I must have been out for that length of time because when I woke up, they were all around my bed. And um, I told them what happened. And... Um, they were now trying to interact with my ex-wife uh, because um, they were uh, needing to get my things from her. <laughs> um, and uh, so we, they took me, brought me back to Michigan. I was in Ann Arbor with my mom. She had actually moved to Ann Arbor right before I, and when I say right before I went in the military, it was like a month and a half before I went in the military. So I didn't really know a lot about Ann Arbor. But uh, I was here recovering, and it, the idea was I was going to recover, and then uh, once I recovered, we were going to get back together. But my intention was I was going to divorce her. Um, and the reality is, is that what she had suspected I did, I did. I had a one-night stand uh, with, a, with a gal, and um, believe it or not, uh, the people who were involved in telling her the information and feeding her suspicions uh, were people that I thought were protecting me. In other words, uh, some guy who actually liked this gal uh, told my wife, um, and that's uh, helped defeat her suspicions of something that she uh, didn't, again, know actually had happened. Now, um, because I came from a Christian background and um, I, I knew I did something wrong, uh, I got the, uh, a huge sense of, uh, of feeling guilty and concluded that I got what I deserved that her shooting me happened because of what I did. And so I took responsibility for what I did. And um, I felt like I had to forgive her, that that was a Christian principle that I um, needed to embrace, especially because I was guilty in my mind of, of doing wrongdoing. I, at that time, couldn't see that regardless of my guilt, that type of response was was just not necessary. But I accepted what happened to me because I was so willing to embrace my own uh, wrongdoing and, and, and embrace my own sense of responsibility. So believe it or not, I, I reconciled with her. Um, I had basically told her that I had not done what uh, I, I did. And once we got back together, I, I actually literally went back to North Carolina and we were attending a church in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and 
I heard a sermon from the, uh, the pastor that day about uh, not having any secrets between um, your mate. And so I went home that evening or after that church service and basically told my ex-wife, yes, you know what? I actually did this. Um, and she said, well, you know, I agree with the pastor. You need to know some things that I did. And uh, I confessed to my one night stand and she confessed to actually having been with six different men um, and had actually multiple sexual encounters with about three or four of them over the first two years of our marriage. So now I was, I was you know, I make this huge, bold move of forgiveness uh, for what I thought was just her shooting me because of my sense of guilt and sense of responsibility and uh, wanting to embrace my Christian principles and thinking I, I, if, if I had not been living wrong, um, God wouldn't have been mad at me and I didn't want God to be mad at me anymore. Sure. And so uh, now I, I, I'm, I'm grappling with this huge sense of, of uh, my own hurt and pain um, for the things that she did, her, her hypocrisy um, for um, basically trying to kill me over something that she was guilty of doing herself. Yeah. Um, but over the years, believe it or not, I tried to make a go of it. I, 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 I threw myself into studying the scriptures. Uh, we attended church. Uh, we had a good close-knit church family, no matter where we went uh, from there in the military, from Fayetteville to Germany to Lawton, uh, uh, Oklahoma, when I was at Fort Sill, and then eventually here when I got out of the active army. And um, yet this thing continued to plague me in the back of my mind um, about the fact that this person tried to kill me and the things that she did. And what ended up happening was our, I got into this 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 sense of always over explaining my day, telling her everything that I did, everything that every place that I went, every person that I talked to, what we talked about, just so that she could get a sense that I was not doing anything wrong, but it didn't do me any good because she got into this really horrible, horrible pattern of accusing me of things that I didn't do. And basically saying because of what I did, that that was her uh, justification for it. And then there, that always sparked the arguments. And I thought, well, geez, OP, you know, what are you doing? You know, you, you were just yeah. you were even more guilty than me of infidelity, yet this seems to be your main focus about me. Um, and then there was a time where I thought she was doing something and she claimed that she wasn't. Uh, I thought, okay, I'm the guy with the problem, so maybe I need to seek some counseling. And I did. And uh, the person that I was going to counseling with uh, used a professional technique to draw her in so that we eventually were going, I was going for individual therapy and then she was coming and we were doing kind of like couples therapy. Yeah. And during that time, she, she finally confessed to having an affair after we got here to Ann Arbor. And so now I'm, 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 my daughter was three years old at the time. I was anti-divorce because I was a child of divorce. Yeah. I didn't want my daughter to grow up in a, in a divorced home or I, I actually didn't want her to be around some kind of sketch guy uh, coming into the scene uh, and uh, probably, you know, causing her any kind of emotional or mental or physical harm. So for my daughter's sake, I stuck it out again uh, beyond this new confession. And then things started getting even more difficult. This person accusations became uh, 
uh, consistent, persistent. And it got to the point where I literally every day didn't know what was going to happen. I, I lived in fear of this person, uh, lived in fear of this person's accusations, what she was going to accuse me of, how was I going to ensure that I could give her some kind of sense of confidence that not, I wasn't doing anything. And yet um, it, it started getting to the point where I realized this person, she may have been suffering from a mental health condition um, because there was one day we were having an, uh, a conversation. I said something. And then right after that, she repeated back to me something. And she said, why did you say this? And I said, I didn't, that's not what I said. She literally said something and literally claimed that I said something that I didn't say. And that's when I really started thinking, well, something's not clicking right. And uh, so she actually had a private investigator following me around. She uh, left recording devices in our home so that when I was at home on my days off on Friday, um, she was literally recording me. And um, then she started getting violent again. Um, she threatened one day to burn the house down when I was sleeping. And uh, when I thought maybe I shouldn't think she, that she was joking, I, I got out of the bed and went downstairs and she was walking outside with the gas can. Wow. And a lighter. In her. So I, I called the Ann Arbor police and they came and got her, took her to U of M Psychiatric Emergency Services, but they released her. Uh, about a month and a half after that, I found one of her recording devices. And when she came home, I was vacuuming and she came into the uh, living room screaming at me saying, give me my stuff and went into the kitchen drawer and pulled out a, a two pronged barbecue fork and was chasing me around the house while I was on the phone with uh, the 911 operator literally trying to dodge her she was trying to stab me with this two-pronged yeah. barbecue fork and she was angry um and our police responded to that and then we had another incident and that's when i realized that i i i had done everything i could do i didn't really believe there was anything else i could say or do to convince this person that i was not up to any wrong um and i realized that my life was literally in jeopardy she had already proven to me once that she was capable of trying to take my life and my family members were very concerned about me and said, you need to get out of there. But then I was scared. I was literally feeling trapped. I was scared of divorce. I was scared of the cost. I was scared of child support and alimony and just, I was scared of being poor. And that was what literally kept me in this relationship along with my own sense of obligation to my daughter and being anti-divorce. But I finally realized I needed to get out of there and I did. I first filed for a personal protection order against her, which the, the judge gave me based on the police reports that were already on file. And um, I had two weeks before I could move out and she did everything that she could do to try to prompt me uh, to, into an argument to, she actually threw things at me and hit me with things, a cell phone, uh, a, a, a little um, a statuette on one occasion, um, shoes and, um, uh, I finally moved out. She didn't know where I was supposed to go. Um, but nonetheless, she violated the personal protection order on four occasions. And uh, the, the judge in charge of the divorce, Judge Nancy Wheeler, actually uh, sent her to jail for 17 days. And um, But that didn't stop her. Um, I failed to let you know some other things. She actually wrote a letter to President Obama. She hand wrote it. She made copies of it, sent it to the Black Congressional Caucus. The entire Michigan congressional delegation, our senators and representatives, and in this letter, she accused me of molesting my daughter. Oh no! And asked that somebody help her 
lock me up because I was some high powerful man that was getting away with this. And uh, so, yes, um, uh, I was contacted by the Ann Arbor Police Department, uh, Child Protective Services. Uh, none of them believed her story. I took uh, the, the detectives in charge of the investigation for Ann Arbor Police Department said, look, we'll just have you take a, po a polygraph and, and, and once we clear you of these false accusations, we'll charge her with filing a, a false police report. I said, I want two polygraphs. So I did, I actually submitted myself to uh, two polygraphs, um, passed them, they charged her with a false police report, but the, the prosecuting attorney would not prosecute her because my polygraphs were not admissible in court. She would have to make a confession, so she, refused to take a polygraph herself, so they dropped the case. Mrs. Curry over at Child Protective Services called me in for my interview and was very irritated that she actually had to even do it, but she understood what was going on. And um, she found again in my favor that these were false accusations, but this is what I had to deal with even after sure. the divorce. And uh, when we had our, you know how you have a divorce hearing where you go and the, the yeah. judge says, okay, this is what you're gonna get, this is what you're gonna get. Well, our, one day divorce hearing turned into a three day divorce trial. <laughs> she brought people in there that lied on me about having an anger problem and all these things. I, I actually said, you know, your honor, I do have an anger problem because I got post-traumatic stress disorder from her sure. shooting me. Sure. And uh, it was so, it was, but nonetheless, um, she got custody of my daughter. Um, she, the, the judge awarded her temporary spousal support for two years. And, you know, I just, I finally had my freedom, but I didn't feel like I was free. And uh, about nine months after the divorce was final, she literally abandoned my daughter. Um, that was in May of 2012. And for the last five years, uh, no one, including her family in North Carolina and South Carolina and cousins and aunts and uncles in New York, Connecticut, uh, Virginia, Maryland, Florida, no one, literally no one has heard from her. No one knows where she is. Uh, I had to get custody of my daughter. I had to do that on my own. Uh, and this is why I share this because, you know, we, we, we see a lot about uh, domestic violence and what happens to women. And I, and I certainly um, am uh, empathetic and sympathetic to that. But a lot of times when you see memes or you see uh, any advertisements or you see anybody talking about this subject, it's always about uh, domestic violence and men against women. Sure. I have a hard time with that I, I, being empathetic sometimes because no one is telling our story. Yeah. Um, no one talks about not only the physical, but the mental and emotional abuse that women are capable of doing just as much as men. Yeah. And so men, I want if, if they know, if they know what's right and, 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 and what's, and if they're smart, they would never, uh, and I never, I never hit this woman. I never physically uh, was ever physical with her because I knew that the minute that that happened, I was going to be in jail. And um, so um, the, 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 this happened, and, and, you know, that's my story. Um, I finally, after all those years, I'd never sought treatment for myself. And I finally went to the VA uh, Ann Arbor healthcare system and was, yes, as you can imagine, diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder mm -hmm. and uh, went through prolonged exposure therapy and uh, 12 weeks of that. And then I did cognitive behavior therapy for depression. I did cognitive behavior therapy for anxiety and I did cognitive behavior therapy for anger management. And um, 
focusing on my daughter over the last five years, uh, and then my granddaughter who was born two and a half years ago, uh, focusing on my own uh, mental health and my own spiritual health, my own physical health, uh, literally has helped me get to where I am today and uh, realize, yes, I'm a, I am a survivor and uh, I have a story to tell, I have a story to share, and my hopes are that um, it will liberate others who are in this situation, whether they're men or women, and uh, that they realize that when, when things are toxic, you, you really do need to recognize it for what it is. And as difficult as it is to do something for yourself, you should do something to take care of yourself and make, get yourself into a safe place, get away from those toxic people and toxic relationships and preserve your spiritual, mental, emotional, and physical health for the future. Totally. So I wanted to ask you before we wrap up, what symptoms did you experience? You mentioned depression, anxiety, and anger and frustration. Anything else from a physical standpoint that you experienced in case someone is listening and saying that they're seeing parallels in their own lives to your life? And if they think that they are losing their mind or they're crazy, not words that I use um, myself, but words that society has kind of, I would say, cheapened a little bit. And um, it is common for survivors having experienced something so traumatic to start to feel uh, physically different than they had previously and definitely emotionally and psychologically. So what were some of the physical symptoms that you experienced? So physical symptoms, um, I, there, were, there would be times where I would just always, you know how you get the butterflies in the stomach sure. feeling? Sure. Uh, it would just come out of nowhere for no reason. Um, I would sometimes, uh, uh, my body temperature would increase and I, I could feel my heart rate increasing. I would sometimes get um, um, sweaty or um, have this feel, feeling like I was going to pass out. Um, and, and, and what I eventually realized was these were these are panic attacks that I was having. Um, I, would, I would get a sense of uneasiness uh, in, in different settings around different people. Um, I literally, literally to this day cannot sit with my back um, to the door, facing the door. I, 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 I get uh, the hairs on the back, on my back and on the back of my neck literally stand up and I, I cannot do it. Even the thought of it. I, I get a, a physical response. I feel like something is, 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 is behind me. And uh, so I, I always have to sit where I'm facing the door, whether I'm in a restaurant, um, and that, that can become problematic when I go to meetings and somebody is sitting in the chair that then mm -hmm. leaves the only chair available to me uh, uh, with my back to the door. And I, I, I have to ask people if they would be kind enough to move so that I can sit, so I can face the door. It's got to the point, believe it or not, where my daughter knows that about me, that when we go into settings, she will, she will ask people if they will move so that she says so that my dad can sit with his back against the wall or so that my dad can uh, sit facing the door. So it's an over it's, it's, it's a really unusual feeling. Um, even like I said, when I talk about it, I can get that sense that something is behind me and the hairs on the back of my neck stand up um, in, in terms of emotions. Um, I, I would always have these, uh, this overwhelming sense of fear that, um, that I, I was going to be killed or that uh, 
I was not going to, if, if there was going to, if I was planning a trip or a vacation, I would think that I was not going to make it to that day to enjoy something good. Um, I always had this sense of uh, my life was going to be shortened. And, uh, and, and mentally, um, a lot of rumination, mm. a lot of just worrying. And, and, and I, I would have to tell myself those similar thoughts over and over and over. Like, I'm not going crazy. Um, I'm okay. Um, I, I am all right. I'm going to make it. I'm going to, I would have to say a lot of self-affirming statements to calm myself down. And, and this would be throughout the day. And then I'd have ruminating thoughts about, um, and then I get scared that I was going to actually will something to happen with my bad thoughts. And then I get mad or angry at myself for thinking these things. And I, I used to actually pray and say, God, please protect my, my, my daughter from my thoughts. You know, because I would actually think that bad things were going to happen to my daughter. Like she was going to get in a car wreck or um, that somebody was going to be mad at me uh, in a traffic situation and shoot me. I mean, I, I, I'd have just some of the most horrible thoughts. And um, it's, it's taken a while to get to a place where I, I have a sense of peace and I can uh, deal with my thoughts, capture them, and uh, redirect my, my emotions and my, my thoughts in a different direction. Wow, that is a really powerful story. And, and how are you doing now? You said that you've come around the other side, no longer having nightmares, no longer having some of these symptoms that you just shared with us. How are things going for you now? Oh, they're, they're, they're going great. I'm, I'm really um, feeling like I'm at a place now of, of getting to a sense of peace, um, no nightmares, um, I, I sometimes I'll have a dream about my ex, but there it's not a nightmare. I, I still call it a nightmare because I don't want to have, I don't want to think about her at all. Right. I don't blame you. <laughs> but um, I, I, I think um, the, uh, the VA's uh, mental health, uh, what we call episodes of care contributed a lot to that. But I, I do, I get a great sense of satisfaction in, in my work and helping others. Um, the victories that we have uh, here, my staff, I've got a great staff and um, the just, you know, my daughter, and my granddaughter live with me. So um, I get to, to see the two most important people in my, my life every single day and which gives me the opportunity to spoil them. And, and so that's the thing. I, I, I get, a, get a chance to um, really be with people that matter to me and, and, and pour into their lives and uh, make sure that, that their um, future is going to be secured, that it's going to be successful, and definitely supported by me. And so that gives me a great sense of purpose and, um, and gives me a great sense of wanting to be here. So the thoughts of, of not being here or something tragic happening to me, I dismiss that um, with thoughts of I am going to be here, I have to be here, my daughter needs me. My granddaughter needs me. My staff needs me. My, the, my veterans need me. Uh, my friends need me. And I need me to be here. So, yeah. That's awesome. So thank you so much for sharing your story with me and those that are listening. I really appreciate you agreeing to come on the podcast. And you're absolutely right. One of the reasons that domestic violence is something that I care about is because 
I want stigma to be reduced. I want people who are experiencing something that traumatic and that terrible to feel like they are going to have support regardless of gender when they speak up and I want people to believe them so that they don't feel further traumatized by no one believing them and then having experienced the trauma itself in the first place. So thank you again so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity and and I I do, I, I, I applaud you for, um, um, really kind of just being a stereotype buster, you know, somebody that just says, you know what, uh, we're, we're not going to accept any kind of stereotypes or any kind of categorizations that are negative and imposed on people. And you're right, the stigmas, um, especially around mental health, those, those, those uh, are, are probably my most passionate, um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm most passionate about those customers on my caseload who are not only suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, but schizophrenia and bipolar or major depressive disorder or general anxiety disorder. And um, right, helping them to say, you know, get to that sense of you're okay. It, this, this doesn't define you. Right. And others, others shouldn't define you by this. Just no, no more than anybody would define you if you had a bad knee or, or you know, a low back. Exactly. <laughs> That's so true. So true. That's awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you again. Um, and we'll definitely have you come back on and we'll talk about other stuff. So I really appreciate you, Michael. Um, all right. So I found one story that I think is perfect for what we've talked about. And it appears to be an older gentleman. And it's, he says, I'm telling you prayer works. And then when asked... What's a time that prayer didn't work for you? His response, the time I didn't pray. So friends, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Thank you for your support of the Type A Hippie podcast, the Cheekast. This is episode 64 in the Survivor Series arc. And definitely share this podcast with someone that you feel could be um, helped by it. Rate and review. Let me know what you think and what or whom. So what you'd like us to talk about next and whom you want to hear on the podcast the next time we hit record. I honor the place within you where the entire universe resides. I honor the place within you of love, of light, of truth, of peace. I honor the place within you where when you are in that place in you and I'm in that place in me, there is only one of us. Have a gratitude-filled day, friends. My name is Chidima, also known as the Type A Hippie. Namaste.